Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I'm not going to give a typical introduction to this episode. I simply want to set the scene. On this episode, Ken Brown, my birding buddy, you remember Ken from episode number two, the very first episode with a guest, Ken and I go birding in southeast Washington in Walla Walla County, and I arranged to meet up with Mike Denny to show us around the area and help us find some great gray owls. Great gray owls were, if we found them, and we did, are a first Washington sighting for me, a new state bird, which is exciting for me, a lister, of course. Uh, and the Blue Mountain Range is a large mountain range, about 400 miles long and 100 miles wide, quite a unique habitat uh, that lays in northeast Oregon and southeast Washington. Walla Walla County includes a lot of that. And we sit down in a remote area on the Jasper Mountain in the Northern Blues with Mike Denny and Ken Brown right after we find a family of great gray owls. So I use an omnidirectional mic. Birders, listen up. See how many species you can identify. You'll also hear the great gray owl chicks begging and occasionally hear an adult great gray respond to them. So it's a pretty cool place to do a podcast. I really had fun. It was hard to stay focused on the interview because every now and then we just go, oh my gosh, listen to that. Wow, that's cool. So you'll occasionally hear an interlude like that where we uh, get distracted by the birds around us. So I hope you enjoy the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 63 with Mike Denny. Hey, birds. This is uh, Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, and I am sitting here someplace, I'm not even sure where, in the northern Blue Mountains with Mike Denny and Ken Brown. Mike is the kind of a birding guru of Walla Walla County, and he brought Ken and me out here to see great gray owls, a first Washington bird for me. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Beyond my pleasure, it's so cool. <laughs> Terrific pleasure. Uh, anyway, to sit here and listen to these great gray owl chicks, you might hear them in the background. So, Mike, tell me about your experience with great gray owls and the northern blues. Well, uh, the northern blues are known to uh, host the uh, densest population of great gray owls in the northern hemisphere. And uh, in the late 90s into the early 2000s, we know that there were at least 52 pair and uh, probably still averages that same number this day and age. Uh, great gray owls are uh, present from about 3,800 feet to about 4,500 feet. So a really narrow range. Narrow band. And they are uh, the largest uh, in size of any owl in uh, Washington State. Uh, they're 27 inches high, but they are all fluff. Uh, it, they weigh, a male weighs about a pound and a quarter, a pound and 1.8 pounds. Females can reach two pounds. Uh, they are a massive bird uh, wing-wise. They have a 47-inch wingspan and uh, they are silent, absolutely silent when they fly. Uh, their primary prey base in the Blue Mountains are redback vole, uh, pocket gophers, chipmunks, and they will on occasion take meadow voles as well. Uh, I always, uh, when I see them take a chipmunk, I always consider it uh, ironic justice because early in the spring, chipmunks wipe out most ground nesting bird nests. Oh, okay. Uh, because there's fewer insects in there after uh, protein, they find these nests and they will eat the eggs. 
But the birds always double clutch and they bring on a new set of eggs. And by then the insect numbers are much higher and the chipmunks uh, leave the bird nest mostly alone. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But uh, so the great gray owls come in and uh, grab chipmunks early in the spring. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, keeping the population of chipmunks down, so they might have a chance for the little birds next that's year. That's right. Cool. That's right. Oh, that is that is so freaking cool. Those birds branching like that when they flap their wings. Isn't oh, my that goodness. something? That is so cool. So wings. great gray owls um, are found in a lot of the drainages of the blues, and they are. Um, usually very, very silent. Uh, you don't hear the adults very much until they get on a nest. And then you will hear location calls the female gives, and that's to uh, ensure the male that she's still sitting on that uh, platform, mm -hmm. on that nest. And she will uh, call about once every 10 or 12 minutes. She'll give a, a location call. Just a hoot. Just a <laughs> one, 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 And one. that's it. You gotta be that's patient to hear those yes. guys. And then the male will give a and that's to let her know that he's in the area and once the chicks hatch uh, and they hatch about 28 hours apart so there is a dominant chick that is established early on and fed early on and they uh, continue to hatch in about 28 hour intervals and uh, the last chick in this case this nest sometimes has four eggs so the dominant chick, the dominant sibling, gets the bulk of the food, mm -hmm. and the fourth chick uh, just does not make it. So today, uh, we've located three of the chicks that were hatched, and they were the only three we saw this spring. So it's very nice to hear all three of them out here. Yeah, it's gotta be good hunting. Yes, a uh, large rodent population here. So uh, the adult male uh, brings food to the nest site. Uh, oftentimes the female will go out to meet him and will not allow the male near the nest. And so that is an unusual thing that uh, this particular species does. Um, we have found great grays. Uh, the male will call and then the female will collect the prey item and then take it to the chicks. If the chicks have fledged, and what we've just witnessed, the female will fly in with a prey item, and the chicks go bananas because yeah, the they're all they're all struggling to get to the prey item first. <laughs> it's competition from the very get-go, and so those chicks all sit together, hoping that they will just be able to grab that prey item first. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, for the third chick, he's up over here, away from the other two, and so. She's having to feed him separately, which is actually a better strategy because he doesn't have to compete with that right, second I mean, he, chick. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably the smallest one over there. Well, he's probably the dominant oh, chick. Oh, the dominant one. Yes, okay. and so he gets pr fed often and alone, and these two smaller Battle ones are out. battling it out. <laughs> so the other interesting thing about great grays in the blues is that... Um, they are being pressed on all sides uh, from the higher elevation sites are being pressed by barred owls. Uh, barred owls have moved into the Grand Fur Forest where great grays traditionally nest. And uh, no owl in Walla Walla County or Washington State for that matter builds its own nest. They are totally reliant on other species for a nest platform. So in the great grays case, it's usually old hawk platforms or old raven nests. Mm -hmm. 
This particular pair is unusual because they nest in a pileated woodpecker excavation site. We saw that. So it's yes. a giant, it's maybe 18 or 20 inches high and 10 or 12 inches wide and probably 8 inches, 10 oh, inches deep. Oh, probably 10 inches deep. It's a big space, but the thought that they can put three or four eggs in there and raise three or four young in that little tiny spot yes. is kind of amazing. And, and the female often has her tail pushed way up. Look that, at him. Yeah, it's almost flying. Almost, not quite. <laughs> His whole goal is to exercise those wings by going up and down right, that branch. Right, right. Yes. So uh, the female often sits compressed in that nest with her tail way up the wall of the interior oh of my, that yes. cavity. Uh -huh. um, the male will sometimes, after he feeds the female, will go and sit nearby on a snag, a dead aspen there. Mm -hmm and uh, just sit there and watch because oftentimes when the male comes in with a prey item mm -hmm. he attracts a raven oh. that keys on him and mm. will come right in hoping to get that prey item right. or find out where the nest or, is yeah. but when he stops the raven is totally intimidated by the size of the great gray oh, yeah. and will not get anywhere near the area where the great gray has come in and so it will back off mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned barred owls coming in from the higher elevation sites where mm -hmm. great grays. So great grays have moved down into second cut sites. And that has pushed them directly into great horned owl territory. And uh, we know that great horned owls uh, will capture and kill great grays, both adults and subadults. Wow. And so over out of Somerville, Oregon, near uh, La Grande, Oregon, uh, we have a documented case of a great horned owl killing adult male. Wow. Great so, gray. So a great horned owl, although they, in terms of inches, they're smaller. They're almost twice as heavy or t more than twice as Three heavy. pounds. Three pounds. Okay. Yeah. I had four. Okay. Three yeah. pounds. So they're one and a half to two times bigger. And they have uh, 300 PSI on the tip of their talons. So there's very few species that a great horned cannot take out. Uh, they've been documented taking out uh, birds as large as uh, Canada geese with no problem. Wow. They uh, often kill red-tailed hawks on their roost and eat mm. them. Wow. So a great horned owl is a serious customer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for them to be pressing from the lower elevations up and barred owls coming in from the higher elevations, great grays are in a very narrow band now. And I'm extremely concerned about them in the Blue Mountains because of that. The other big issue is that great grays don't have much fear of human beings. And they often will sit on a trunk of a tree or a stump near a road and people hit them with cars or shoot at them. And so their population gets diminished that way. Um, we have, unfortunately, a percentage of very ignorant individuals that think that everything in the woods is up to be shot. And they do that. And so uh, it's really unfortunate. Um, great gray owls are protected both federally and state, and they are on the critical list in Washington state. So uh, we're very fortunate to be sitting here watching uh, these chicks yeah. and this adult. Let's just listen for a second. You can hear the, the, the chicks doing their squawking noise up here if we listen carefully. That was it. And that call is their location call to the adult. Hey, we're over here. Bring the bring, me some bring food, the chipmunk over here. Yeah, mm -hmm. very cool. 
so great grays are one of the uh, uh, you know iconic uh, species of the of the blues tell me a little bit you, you mentioned earlier the sort of crazy geologic origins of the Blue Mountains. That was just nuts. So there is a theory among geologists that the Blue Mountains uh, slid in here uh, eons ago, and they uh, have andesite all over the Blues, and it is uh, crystalline. The crystalline formation of this andesite is identical to the Andes Mountains and to islands in the South Pacific. So the, uh, this particular basalt is called andesite because of its match to the Andes. Andes. And so as a result of that, the uh, Blue Mountains are kind of an island. And in the natural world, they have certain species that other mountain ranges in the West do not have. And they lack certain species, which all other ranges in the West have, like cedar trees. We have no cedar trees in the Blue Mountains. Uh, there is a um, family of salamanders that live all the way around the Blue Mountains called plethodons, which are not found in the Blue Mountains. Uh, there are several flower species that are endemic to the Blue Mountains, found nowhere else. Um, four years ago, uh, seven species of plants were discovered in the Blue Mountains that had remained undiscovered up until just four years ago. So there are still things to discover in this world. <laughs> yes, many of them. <laughs> and so uh, I have had the good fortune of seeing three of those plants. And it's uh, one's a paintbrush, uh, one's a grass species, and one is a phlox uh, species. And it's just totally amazing. So the Blue Mountains uh, biologically are still being discovered. And that's what's exciting. So uh, a lot of the bird species that live in the blues are uh, fairly well understood. Uh, it's the plant world that's not understood very well, or the Lepidoptera, the butterflies. Mm -hmm. And so that is really interesting. But uh, the birds in this area are uh, here in mass. We get large numbers, despite what has been discovered. So I will share with you quickly uh, in the early 1990s, David DeSantee from Point Reyes Bird Observatory came up here and I helped him establish uh, nine banding stations looking at uh, recruitment into uh, neotropic migrant bird populations with their young. So recruitment, help me understand what that and is. And that is when birds nest and pull off young, mm -hmm. uh, DeSantee and his crews would uh, misnet those young birds and banned them. Mm -hmm. And then they would look for them in Central and South America and on their migratory routes mm -hmm. down through California, Arizona, New Mexico. Okay. So what they discovered was that we were losing 3% uh, of our young birds were never returning to this forest. And with a loss like that of 3% a year, that becomes a, a high, high number of birds that are not returning. And so uh, it becomes a real concern. So Mike, by not returning, you mean just didn't make it through the winter? Just couldn't survive. That's, that's of the adults? This so is adults. This at, coming back, returning yeah, first-year birds. Oh, first-year birds oh, that first didn't return. Birds. Right, okay. did not return. Is this beyond the mortality of like 80%? Correct. So 
Here's what David DeSanti discovered, and it just blew me away. He discovered that this forest in the northern Blue Mountains mm -hmm. is not affected by El Nino, but La Nina from the Atlantic. Holy mackerel. So a finger of moist weather comes across central Canada, loops down through the Selkirk Mountains in northeastern Washington, and into the northern blues. So that's the same curve you see of species range maps, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And so it is what we call the Canadian finger, comes across, drops down into northeast Washington and into the northern Blue Mountains. I didn't know it came down this far. And so when La Nina hits the Atlantic coast, our birds have to pull off their young later in the year. Therefore, the young do not have the time to gain fat reserves they require to migrate south. Wow. And so what's been discovered is that because of that lack of fat on their migratory way south, mm -hmm. uh, many of them succumb to starvation. Just don't make so it. So most of our birds, when they migrate, are molt migrators. Correct. So they're not even going all the way south. Right. They're going like, they don't have enough to make it to Arizona. Correct. And so they are in trouble when La Nina hits the Atlantic coast. So there is a paper that David DeSanti published on the whole thing, and it can be found online. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'll have you send me that uh, yes. reference, and I'll put it in the podcast notes and on yes. the blog post that goes along with this. Okay. So help me. The, the, in terms of this southward migration, mm -hmm. uh, do those birds go back around all the way to the Atlantic and down, or do they fly straight bound? They head straight south. And so they go down through uh, California, Arizona, some through New Mexico into Chihuahua. And do they come back the Sonora. same route or do they go around? Some go through the Midwest and around, mm -hmm. some come straight north. Hmm. Depends on the species. Yes. So it is truly phenomenal. It is. And so more work that's done in the Blue Mountains because of our odd geology are uh, uh, being affected by La Nina off the Atlantic coast. It is different than anything in the Cascades, Very different unique. anything in the Selkirks or in Idaho. Even in the Rockies. Even so in the Rockies. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. I'm wondering, does that tie into the arboreal forest in Canada and how it goes into the, and the eastern species followed up? Absolutely perceptive. So we have a species of owl here that was discovered in 1987, and that's a boreal owl. Mm -hmm. We're Way found in the northern blues, Way nesting hmm. and common. And so it was like, how come it took us till 1987 to find this unusual, unexpected owl species? Well, they are attracted to any elevation above 5,000 feet with grand and alpine fur, subalpine fur. Right. And so there they were. And so once again, the Blue Mountains shine because here is a species no one even was looking for in the Blue Mountains. Yeah because it was assumed they weren't high enough. We didn't have the elevation to provide a, as hosts. This is a random, completely off-topic subject. Are they called the Blue Mountains because they look blue, or how do they, they get are. that name? They actually look blue. If you're down in the lower Columbia Basin and you look east, you'll see these blue, hazy mountains. Okay. If you look from Idaho in these uh, Seven Devils and you look this way to the west, you'll see these blue, hazy mountains. Mm -hmm. And another reason was when the tribes were the only people here, they would frequently burn areas 
and uh, to bring the grass up for their uh, horses. Mm -hmm. And that smoke would hang here in the fall oh, and it looked haze. blue, yes. Okay. So the Blue Mountains were famous because they were an impediment to settlement uh, in the 18th and 19th century because they are a serious mountain range. Yeah. They're 100 miles across and 400 miles long. So north to south long. North to south long. So they fill all of northeastern Oregon and a portion of southeast Washington. Mm -hmm. So they're a massive mountain range. They have hundreds of drainages in them. And uh, they ha are the, one of the most amazing ranges in the western United States. Very cool. Very cool. So, Mike, you moved here in the 70s? Late 70s. I went here, came here to go to college. Okay. And I studied biology. Uh-huh. And I uh, came now, here. which college? Just Walla Walla College. Walla Walla College, mm -hmm. okay. And I came here. Uh, my parents moved back from Africa. That's where I grew up is in southeastern Africa. Wow. And uh, that's where I started bird watching and uh, collecting butterflies. Cool. Yeah, and the Blue Mountains have loads of butterflies. Yeah, you mentioned you brought back over 2,000 yeah, butterflies. Yeah, 2,300 butterflies from Africa. That are now scattered through the museums of the Northwest. They are. And so that has, uh, butterflies have always amazed me because you find isolated pockets of individual species that are connected to the uh, ice sheet that came out of Canada and they're little islands and they may not be located any more than in one little drainage. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot to discover in the Blue Mountains uh, as far as Lepidoptera go. We just don't know. And so really amazing place. Mm -hmm. uh, some other interesting things about the Blues is the geology. We actually have an area in the Blue Mountains that is entirely granitic and not basalt. Uh, which is really Help bizarre. We non <laughs> what, so, what the heck did you just say? Granite. So, <laughs> granite. It's a granite base and instead of a volcanic basalt base. Okay. And granite is what the Rocky Mountains are composed of. So to have a granitic portion of the Blue Mountains is, what is going on here? And then we have this andesite, which is identical to the Andes Mountains in South mm -hmm. America and the South Pacific. And then to have all these plants that haven't really been looked at and we're still being discovering new species, uh, the blues are an exciting place to be. <laughs> I'm Amazing. glad it is. I'm glad I'm... Was that the owl that just flew over? No, no. a pale swallowtail. Okay, a pale okay. swallowtail <laughs> butterfly. I see a thing. Okay. Since we're talking about leopards. Yeah. So we're talking about butterflies. Very so cool. the other thing about birds in the blues is that the blue mountains have uh, really strange weather patterns. And so typically, uh, since 2008, in mid-June, we get uh, cold weather. Mm -hmm. And that has often been very hard on Lepidoptera that emerge in mid-June, and I have seen it where it kills them entirely. Ooh. They're gone. And you have to wait a couple weeks till the later species emerge and arrive. So... Um, a tough place to be a butterfly. It is a tough place to be a butterfly. <laughs> For certain species. Yes. So um, birds also suffer because of that. So we get these cold snaps that hit, and uh, it uh, causes high mortality in you. So, yeah. So, wow. 
I've learned, learned more about the Blue Mountains in uh, 20 minutes here than I uh, knew in my whole life. That's very cool. So, very cool. Uh, two of us uh, made a 13-part uh, series on the secret life of the forest. It's the name of it, of the Northern Blue Mountains, and we did that in 2017. That's a video series? It's a two-part video series, and it's on YouTube. Oh, and yes. you can watch it on YouTube. Okay, And very it's cool. called The Secret Life of the Forest. The Secret okay. Life of the Forest, Whereas, not the blues, but yeah, the forest. The forest, general. and then Colon and the Northern Blue Mountains. Okay. Okay. Anyway, well, that is it's on, on, on my there. must-watch list. Yes. I'm going to ask yeah. you about that. Yes. <laughs> and remember we had, uh, oh, Who's, who's uh, the fellow from uh, Andy? Andy Stepniewski. Oh, Andy, he, yeah. he told us all about the step shrub habitat. Yes. Uh, that, not, I need to get him on the podcast, too. But, yes. Uh, really? Now I'm learning about the Blue Mountain habitat, so that's <laughs> so, super cool. So right now we are in the midst of filming The Secret Life of the Deserts of the Pacific Northwest, and we started last May, and we will end in September. Okay. So, so we've that will been, be also on YouTube eventually. Uh, it will be, Yes. That's got to be a huge undertaking. It is. Are you doing that with some professional photographers? I have had the good fortune of uh, working with a gentleman named Daniel Biggs, and he has a uh, master's in uh, photography, and he is superb. And he filmed all the secret life of the forest, and when you see it, you will be blown away. His wow. photography is well, I am excited. Phenomenal. Definitely. I'm excited. So like we can't have this video. We have been going out uh, filming the deserts since last May, and he averages 2,200 images uh, a trip. Okay. So this is still images. Or? Still video. We have. Uh, GoPro, uh, uh, drone, <laughs> you name it. Yes. So it's all You're there. You're a high tech. Man. Yeah, You're a it's high tech, all there. At least hanging out with a high tech guy. Yeah. So it has been truly amazing. Uh, it was done under the auspices of a television station, the only TV station okay. in Walla Walla called Blue Mountain Television. Okay. And uh, they are the platform that we operate from. And then we have been highly uh, backed by many people in the community. So Very it's cool. been wonderful. That Very cool. cool. So, so when do you expect this new one to be uh, completed? Early, early 2021. Okay. So, yeah. so you've got uh, another six or eight yeah. months of uh, work on that. Right. And the editing, Dan does all the editing. Uh, I am the narrator and the writer, and Dan does the photography and the narration or Very the cool. editing. So, Very cool. That yeah. sounds super cool. Yeah. Now, Mike, your wife is also a, a fabulous oh. birder. Blair Burnson told me she's really the good birder. Blair. I'm throwing Blair under the bus here. <laughs> or maybe she said she's a good photographer. I don't know yeah. what he said. He no. certainly had some high accolades for her. Yes. I can't remember the details. Mary Lynn is an aural birder. That's and, what he told uh, me. He said Mary she's Lynn, got the ears. Yes, and Mary Lynn is a superb birder. And, uh, I think that's the third yeah. bird there. Yeah, he's moved. He's so moved, yeah. that's why I think he is the he dominant looks, sibling. Do you? And these are the two chicks. Did he so, push them off? He looks smaller. No, they went left. Oh, they went further down. Okay. Okay. The adult will be in here. What's amazing here at these great rays is that they're not mobbed by other birds. Mm -hmm. uh, we've yet to see a stellar jay ever come in and bother them. Mm -hmm. um, the only other bird species I've ever seen bother them is this raven. Oh, okay. And uh, 
the adult knows how to intimidate the raven and so puffs up and looks really yeah big. it looks huge yeah. and so the raven uh doesn't, doesn't scrams yeah you started to tell me about mary lynn's uh, birding. so i'm sorry mary lynn i uh and i met because of birding oh uh, we were both on the board of the blue mountain audubon society okay and that was 33 years ago we've been married uh, for 33 years congratulations and uh she is a phenomenal birding partner and it is a lot of fun. Phenomenal enough that you share an eBird account, it looks like. Yes, I, we I, do. I, not many people have seen Mike and Mary Lynn Benny. Yeah. Mary Lynn, and, I don't remember which order it's yeah. in, but you're like, okay, is that two people in one account? They really must get along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to share an eBird account. Yeah. So uh, we've birded all over the place. Uh, been to Costa Rica and Canada. and um, Here's the crew. Here's one of the chicks. Yeah, that's Look chick at that. Moved over yeah. there. He's doing the old wing exercise. Pretend to fly thing. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So these chicks, when they get a hold of a prey item, um, the adult feeds it to them whole. Mm -hmm. we and they that. swallow it whole. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so you yeah. see sometimes a pocket gopher that's eight, nine inches long, and they guzzle it right <laughs> down. From their oh, mouth. Yeah. yeah. From their bill. Yeah. Well, talking about how much Mike knows about these owls, we, uh, we stopped and there was a, a large stump by the side of the road. And, uh, and Mike points out, oh, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a juvenile scree. A juvenile, he can identify how old the bird he was that pooped it. on the stairs. Aged the scree Aged for. the scree. I thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's by virtue of longevity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, some other interesting things about Great Grey Owl. Uh, when I worked for the U.S. Forest Service, uh, we were, uh, I would get put up on Table Rock Fire Lookout when the fire season started because mm -hmm. they were short fire lookouts. Right, and some reports from there. And <laughs> one evening we were driving up and the floodlights from the vehicle went out over the Mill Creek watershed out beyond the uh, fire lookout. And riding in the wind like you see a diurnal raptor do mm -hmm. was a great gray owl out there over the... Uh, Mill Creek watershed, just sitting there riding the wind, kiting just like kiting. I've never even heard of that. And yet he was in my headlights, in the floodlight of the vehicle, just out there, just riding the wind. Phenomenal. Right place at the right time. Didn't, just... I've not found that in any of the literature. And so when you're out and about and in places and circumstances, you least expect to find them. There they are. And that was truly amazing. So that's at 6,250 feet. That is some, that's high. Wow. Yeah. That's high. Very high. Yeah. Wow. That's the upper limits of there. It is. It is. That's the upper limits of where they go. Yeah. So tell me about the, the population of green-tailed towhees that are here. I know that's the so, other uh, people come, Washington birders, who are yes. working on their state list, have to come to the Blues <laughs> yep. for green-tailed towhee. We don't have to come here for Great Grey Owl. We can go north for that. Right. Although I've been north 2,900 times, I feel like, and <laughs> haven't gotten a Great Grey Owl up there. Uh, but I finally came down here to get the guru himself to show it to well, me. So that's cool. But anyway, tell us about the green-tailed towhee. So green-tailed towhees are a common uh, resident species in the southern Great Basin. And they are migrant species in the northern Great Basin. And we are on the edge of the Columbia Basin, which is a sub-basin of the Great Basin. Okay. So uh, this is the northern periphery of their range. Mm -hmm. 
and they love steep sloped canyons. Mm -hmm. And down in Oregon, Northern California, parts of Idaho, they are highly dependent on coral leaf mountain mahogany. They, that's where you find them. Okay. Well, in the northern blue mountains, they like west and south facing slopes, and they love uh, Rocky Mountain maple, uh, what we call ocean spray, and nine bark. And that are the woody shrubs that they require. And so if I come into an area and I find resident uh, spotted towhees on a south or north or east face or west facing slope, I start listening for green-tailed towhees because they often are together. Okay. And uh, green-tailed towhees are uh, highly territorial and they will call frequently and sing. And if you get them between the middle of May to the middle of June, they are extremely vocal and you will find them. One thing about them is that they give some very similar calls to spotted towhee. And my belief is that quite a few people have come to the Blue Mountains assuming they're hearing green-tailed towhees and go home with spotted towhee, (laughs) Mm -hmm. not knowing. But um, green-tails give a very peculiar mew call that Mm. sounds like a house cat. Okay. And I'm going to be quiet. Listen to this. These are those young owls. That's the young great gray owls. But you hear that one call in there, that mm-hmm. That's the adult. Oh. And okay. she's let, trying to calm the young down. The, the adults in the area, we're here. We know where you are. So she's the right adults right somewhere. up in there. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> nothing to be sorry about there. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so green-tailed towhees are found on those uh, south and west-facing slopes, and those are the thin-soiled lithosol slopes. And the western blue mountains all are under lithosol, which means shallow, rocky soils. And the deep soils, where all the big conifers are, where these great gray owls are, are all north and east-facing slopes. Oh, okay. So you won't find them in the same place. Will not. Never. And so uh, we have nine documented species of owls in this county. And uh, the nine species that are here are uh, scattered across all habitats. So we have everything from burrowing owls out in the desert, where there's six inches of precipitation, to great gray owls and boreal owls, where there's 50 inches of precip. So makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah. So 50 inches of precip. 50. Wow, that's a lot for out here. It seems. Yeah. I had no idea. This is the wet end of the Blue Mountains. Okay. Yeah. Good. Cool. So, so like growing up in Africa, you grew up in South Africa or in Southern? Zambia, Zambia and Malawi, Southeast okay. Africa. We, what part of your youth did you spend there? From 7 to 14 years old. Okay. So I went to sc- I went to school under the British system, and I had school in the mornings. And I had all afternoon to go collect butterflies and go birding. <laughs> Perfect. <Very cool. laughs> kind of like that. So I got to explore. I had uh, very close African friends. My brother and I spoke, learned to speak the African language there, which was Chichewa. 
which is an Ngoni language, and the Ngoni are an off-split of the Zulu. And so Chichewa was the language of both eastern Montana or eastern Malawi and southeastern Zambia. Very cool. So, uh, so you were birded there and... I birded there. Uh, Zambia has a little over 900 species of birds. Mm -hmm. Malawi has 1,100 species of birds, even though it's a third the size of Zambia. Uh, Kenya has 1,100 species of birds. So Southeast Africa and Eastern yes. Africa is phenomenal birding. Yeah, I got a chance to go to Kenya with James Bradley. I don't know no, if you know James know. Bradley. He's a biologist and a birder from Victoria, B.C. Okay. And he, John Sterling, and he led a trip to Kenya. Okay. I think 2016, a 15-day trip, and we kind of circled through the whole country. It was just yep. a ridiculously cool trip. Man. Yeah. Oh my. 545 species of yeah. which about 512 were lifers. Yep. Yeah. So I can think looking out my bedroom window when we lived in Zambia, we lived in on the Malawi border south of Chapata, Zambia, which is the regional capital. Okay. And I can look I could look out my bedroom window and see paradise flycatchers on their nest. We had uh, red-headed weavers that had nests on our veranda. Mm -hmm. I had uh, puffback shrikes right off our lawn. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, the bird that I just loved, which was the eye-browed thrush. And they would feed in our yard, and they would uh, winter in Africa mm -hmm. from Europe. Right. And it was crazy. And so we would get all these European passerines mm -hmm. in, uh, during our summer. Uh, dry season right. and then we would have all these African birds there as well. Mm -hmm. I can remember helmeted guinea fowl walking through our yard, vervet monkeys in the trees in our uh, by our house. <laughs> I raised a diker, an antelope I had for two and a half years um, wow. and then he went wild. We returned him. him to the wild. Good for him. Uh, wonderful animal. Uh, leopards would come through our yard. Hyenas would come through our yard. Oh my goodness! It was an amazing place to oh, grow up. Experience. Were you folks birders? Did they uh, help introduce no. you to birding? How did you get? But they you, were. How did you become birders? Well, they were extremely instrumental. So my mom got flashcards in Cape Town, South Africa. Bird flashcards. Yes. <laughs> put them up in the between the leaves on the breakfast table, and she would put three or four up every morning and say and quiz us on what is this. What is this? What is this? What is this? And then on the back of the flashcard was the text about what that species was and where it lived and what, how it uh, survived. Mm -hmm. And so my brother and I both would learned all those birds. And four birds a day. It doesn't take long to have a hundred and yeah. So yeah. Birds birds. And then she had insects. Uh, she had plants. She had North American species flashcards. So we were constantly being... Uh, bombarded with learning and memorizing these species. Very fortunate. Yeah. Very, Very yeah. fortunate. And then my dad loved the outdoors. And as a kid, he grew up in Minnesota uh, hunting and fishing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was not into hunting at all, but I loved fishing. And so in Africa, we would go fishing and had some harem scarum experiences. <laughs> but uh, we would, uh, when we first started fishing in Africa, we weren't very careful about crocodiles. <laughs> We'd go stand right on riverbanks, and it was like those stupid little boys. What are they going <laughs> to learn? Crocodile bait. That's yes. right. And so 
we uh, soon learn not to do that. But, Fortunately in time. Yes. <laughs> but birding was phenomenal. Uh, I'll never forget it. And then on our way to Africa, we went by ship out of New York, oh, wow. 21 days on a Dutch freighter. Mm. And on that boat was an ornithologist going to Africa to so study. You're seven years old. I'm seven. <laughs> going to Africa to study parrots. And he and I would sit on the fantail of that ship and watch seabirds. And he would identify them for me, and I would sit there just flabbergasted because the ship would throw their garbage out over the fantail, and all these seabirds would yeah, collect I when the garbage would. went over. <laughs> and uh, I, that's where I saw my life wandering albatross, uh, cape uh, petrels, uh, you name it. Uh, sperm whale. Life birds from seven. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Are they on eBird? Do you have them on eBird? No, not oh, yet. Oh, come on. <laughs> Get with it, huh? But anyway, so I started with seabirds, and when we got to Africa, it was mostly land birds. But sure. Truly amazing. So yeah. you were curious from the time you were oh, small. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You, you had uh, uh, parents so, who weren't birders, but who were interested in helping you learn about nature and yes. encouraging. Yes. Uh, and then you, from at 14, you moved back to the U.S.? Came back to America, and we lived in uh, McMinnville, Oregon. Okay. My dad taught high school there. Mm -hmm. And then... Were, were your parents teachers in Africa? My mom you? was... Well, my, my dad taught industrial arts. Okay. And he trained Africans how to build prefab metal buildings, how to weld, how to uh, work on vehicles, okay. uh, you name it. And he worked at a school of industrial arts. It oh. was a technical training center. Very cool. Nice. And my mom taught surgical procedure. She was a nurse. Mm -hmm. wow. And so she worked at a, a nursing school. Mm -hmm. And we had a large hospital there. And that's what she, where she worked. So you moved back oh. to Oregon and, uh, and we picked moved, up your birding from there? Yep, and started birding. I started going to Mount Hill Refuge oh, in 1971 yeah, yeah. and have been there every year since. Oh, it's a great... So, did, you didn't even miss the year when it was taken over? Nope. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, they were gone. Yeah, thank <laughs> But goodness. what a mess they made. Yeah, that was a mess. But it was... Um, birding has always been a huge part of my life. I guess you would say it's a lifestyle. And uh, so I, as a child and as a young adult, and, and now I've never been bored a day in my life. Not once. And Ken, Ken was I don't... me that, uh, was it Rachel or someone asked, just sitting at dinner or something, that someone yeah. asked you if you're always thinking about birds? Rachel. Rachel, we were coming back on a trip, one of our trips. I take her out once a week. My wife is not a non-birder, but she's interested in seeing nature. Yeah. So I, we're driving back home. And she knows me very well, and she asked me a pointed question. Do you think about birds all the time when we're out? And I thought for, you know, a second. <laughs> yep. And I said yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Pretty much it's on the mind of a birder everywhere you go. That's right. I always told That's my right. kids I, I used to hate to go to the beach. Go to the, I mean, <laughs> sitting in the hot sun, on the sand, just uncomfortable, sitting on the ground, you know, just was not my thing. And then I got into birding, and all of a sudden, I love to go to the beach, and yeah, golf, and shepherds, yes. maybe sheer water, you know, yep. who knows what you'll see. So, when Mary Lynn and I go to the beach, it's uh, not quite the beach experience most Americans have. We set our scopes up right at the spray line, mm -hmm. And uh, especially in August uh, at Long Beach or at Ocean Shores, oh. and the Sh city Shearwaters are going by There's by the thousands. Oh, yes. 
and we set it up and it is an educational opportunity and people stop and go, are you looking at whales? And I always go, no, something entirely better than whales. And what's that? Well, it is one of the great biological events in the world. Oh, you're a born teacher, my boy. And we show them these shearwaters just off the break and then they look and it's like there's thousands of them and i never saw those before yeah, yeah. i've never seen that before and you have people starting to collect around your scopes and before long it's the opportunity i've creating and then you have 25 30 40 people standing there and you get to tell them about the biology of shearwaters yes isn't that great and how oregon and washington figure into that and give us the story might as well educate some of our listeners i have some listeners that might not know well so sometimes off the long beach peninsula off of uh the uh, ocean shores area there'll be a hundred thousand sooty shearwaters passing by just beyond the break. And these are birds coming out of the Gulf of Alaska and they're headed back to the south into Australia and islands off New Zealand where they breed. And this is a bird that covers roughly 40,000 miles in one year. And they are a shearwater, a tube nose. And by tube nose, they have these two special tubes on top of their bill, which allow them to get rid of salt out of water that they intake uh, while they're feeding and drinking. And these tube noses, or shearwaters as they're called, puffinous, uh, fly in these massive flocks and they're feeding on squid. (laughs) And they are nocturnal feeders. And so they eat tons of squid. They eat a lot of small surface fish, but they eat a lot of squid. And they fly in a flap, flap, glide, flap, flap, glide. Shearing the water. Yes, just above the surface, literally just above the surface. And if it's uh, weather, Mm -hmm. then the waves, and they shear along the face of a wave and drop over the top and shear the next wave. And they are truly phenomenal to watch. So what blows me away is there will be hundreds and hundreds of people on the beach walking along the break, just in front of the break, and they miss the whole thing, which is just 150 yards beyond them. Yeah, it is something. Because they have never learned to observe. You see what you look for. That's right. If you're looking for a buried quarter in the sand, you'll find a buried quarter in the sand. That's right. If you're looking for a shearwater, yep. you'll find a shear, and you might find a fulmar, or you might find a storm petrel, or who knows yes. what you'll find. You might find a pink-footed yes. shearwater out yes. there. Yeah, yes. you never know. No. So that's one of the great things about birding, I think, is people get into it, they, they've never heard of birding before, they get into it, and they find out there are things going around them every day that are... Yep. Truly miraculous. Yes. Yeah, and it, it just brings a joy. It is. Yes. And we go to the coolest places. I mean, <laughs> we're in the Blue Mountains sitting yep. here listening to great gray owl chicks. We saw the great yep. gray owl adult come in and feed them. And, I mean, how many people get to see that? Nobody, Very few. Nobody. Very you don't few. Look for it. Fantastic experience. In so my my old friend, Ken Knittle, Ken Knittle, yeah. uh, was a f- 
outstanding birder, uh, birded every county in Washington State. He knew them like the back of his hand. Yep. And I know dozens of birders now that know every county in Washington State by the back of their hand, yep. all 39 counties. Yep. And if you ever want to know about any Washington County, ask a birder. Exactly. Because they know the roads, they know the cities, they know the towns, they know those counties. Ask Kent. One yes. Of the, one of the don't, most don't humorous ask me. I can stories. Get lost in a parking lot. One of the most humorous <laughs> stories from Ken Knittle is he published Washington Birder for, for years. And one of the articles that I will never forget is how to find house sparrows. And I believe it was Stevens County. Yes, yes. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, oh my God. Now this guy is a county birder. Yes, <laughs> big time. So county birding uh, was basically introduced to Washington State by Ken Knittle. Right, he, has, and, he put up the website Washington Birding. Yes. It has the county birding pages. With right. county. You can download a county checklist for every county. Right. And Matt Bartell now has that fabulous Excel spreadsheet right. that has... Every, it Everything. goes every county across, and it will. It, it's specially figured out to figure out. So it'll it'll add up how many western Washington birds you have, how many eastern Washington birds you have, by what <laughs> county you saw them in, and if you if you fill it in, it's a lot of work to fill it in, but it's it pretty is. cool. And uh, I have to say, Lori Knittle was the one that did all the editing of their publication, Washington Birder, mm -hmm. and uh, so they both put in tremendous amount of time. Okay. But Ken's knowledge that he shared with birders of Washington State is phenomenal. Uh, and it has been a learning base, which a lot of people have utilized. He will always, be missed. That's always joking. Sure. Yes, always. Always joking. So I could tell you story after story about Ken. We spent hundreds and hundreds of hours birding with him. He lived in Walla Walla, and we would bird with him a lot. And funny, funny man. Yeah, I did not know Ken. Yeah, I, I he lived in Walla Walla for a while. Yeah, long time. Yeah. yeah, I worked with him. Ah. Yeah. Did he work for the Forest Service? No, also? no, you just worked with he him. He worked on, for Walla Walla College. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, listen, they, they're yeah, moving they're around again. now. They're right here. Anyway, um, one other thing about green-tailed towhees, uh, and that is that uh, they uh, frequently start their molt before they leave here in August. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you'll see them in really odd molt. And, so the uh, adults? Yes, the molt. adults. Their flight feathers, they start moving you, or they're... They're, they're secondaries. Secondaries. Yeah. And so it's really weird. So you see some big holes yeah. inside yeah. of their wings. Yeah. It's kind of strange. That is yeah. kind of strange. Most yeah. birds, Most birds are already down there. Yeah. Molt strategy is such a crazy, yeah. different species yeah. have different strategies. Some molt before they go south, some molt Wave. after they go south, yep. some stop halfway and molt, yep. some stop here and there and molt. Yeah. <laughs> it's yep. all kind of crazy. So it's nuts. Well, they're hopping skippers. They, they are. They don't they are. Go fly no. 300 miles a night. Yeah. So what I always tell people is that spring migration is a very rapid a focused exactly. uh, movement. Mm -hmm. And those birds want to get to their territory and their habitats immediately because they want to be able imperative. to nest. They need to get that a breed. Breeding imperative. Fall migration mm -hmm. starts here. Uh, they, the, our first migrants arrive here from the north on the 19th of June. Mm -hmm. And it lasts till October 15. Yeah. So it's a long, drawn out, slow thing. What's the hurry? Yeah. yeah. Four months. Yeah. So 
yeah, it doesn't matter to those migrants uh, whether they get to the next county next week or not. It's and, and that's it, it, in some part weather driven too. Oh, I mean, it is. If it gets, mm -hmm. if there's a cold snap, things will move out. Yeah. Raptors, you see that especially. Yep. I mean, raptors, uh, the yep. hawk watchers, they watch the weather reports. They know when the birds are going to be coming. Yep, yep. But I look at passerine movements. Uh, we see some species lag behind clear into the middle of September, end of October. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're not worried. But when those first cold snaps hit, Bam, they're, out of they're here. gone. We're out of here, baby. <laughs> That's another fun thing about birding is you learn the timing of nature. You do. Mm -hmm. You sure you do. What, you see what's going on. Yeah. I write a column, a monthly column for the Walla Walla Union Bulletin on the natural world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it will be coming out this coming Sunday. And uh, the interesting thing is I always write about uh, either birds or mammals, insects, butterflies. And uh, this coming Sunday's is on uh, white-faced ibis and great gray owl. Oh, cool. So, yeah. I'm sure it's on. You it's it online. online. It's yeah. online? Yeah. Walla Walla Union Bulletin. Okay. Sunday cool. edition. Sunday okay. edition. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway... Uh, to be able to come up here, I'm, I'm exactly 19 miles from Walla Walla. Okay. And I'm sitting here looking at great gray owls. Yeah. That's as closest to the location I'll ever tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> good. And you can't find it on eBird anymore. No, nope, it won't be on eBird. Sensitive species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you got to know somebody like yeah. Ken to get him to bring you, and yeah. then you have to not tell everybody. So yeah. That's cool. But... There's a lot of other species that are unique here. Um, we have uh, dusky grouse, which is a large uh, native grouse. We have uh, rough grouse, and both of those grouse species now are uh, suffering because of the introduction of the wild turkey. And uh, wild turkeys now are found clear to 5,500 feet in the Blue Mountains. Wow. And they form up into flocks in uh, October, November of 300 plus birds in a single flock. Yeah. And it's uh, devastating. So, yeah. I did a Thanksgiving uh, podcast last year on uh, wild turkeys and their reintroduction. I mean, they were an endangered species, I want to say, in the 30s or something like yeah. that. Not endangered, but they were threatened. There was numbers were way down from hunting. And it took them a lot of tries to figure out how to reintroduce them. They finally figured out that they could catch them with cannon nets. And yeah. They used that to catch them, and they they found that it, they had to uh, bring the adults and have them have the chicks raised in an area for them to survive, to be taught by their parents and all this yeah. stuff. And I think they learned way too well. Yeah. <laughs> so the the wild turkey that's here, uh, that was originally planted here, was the Miriam's wild turkey from the eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. And they could not take our hot weather. They, they failed. They failed totally. And then they thought, well, that failed, so we'll do something else. So they brought in the Rio from the southwest, from the southwest. and it has exploded. Yeah. I think that latest uh, go-round the, the wildlife department had where they took in, they brought in all three subspecies, yeah. and they put them in the, matched them to habitat and climate. Yeah. That was the one that yeah. made them take off. Well, unfortunately, they did well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very well. So I'm no fan of turkeys, so anyway. Yeah. yeah. But uh, some other interesting things about birds in the blues is that uh, on hot afternoons, some of the best things you can do is to bring a couple gallons of water with you 
pour the water into a uh, depression in the road, a puddle, mm -hmm. and sit there in a chair and watch. Watch see who comes and the, drinks. We've had as many as 30 <laughs> species of birds come to a puddle. Oh, oh my, my goodness. On a hot afternoon. Not to mention a few butterflies. And all I'm the sure. butterflies. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. And it is truly amazing. That would that be is fun. cool. That would be a blast. Yeah. Another thing that, that we trick. do is... Can bring extra water. Can we yeah. come back? <laughs> yeah. Uh, another thing we do is uh, we'll come out into the blues and hang a hummingbird feeder up. Mm -hmm. And this is the only area in Washington State where you could possibly see five species of hummingbirds. Broad and they are? Broad-billed. Broad-billed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Anna's. Rufus, mm -hmm. Calliope, and Black-Chinned. So broad-billed are very unusual here, though, aren't Except they? in the blues. They are? You can, do you have South of us, they breed I don't here. Think, no, I don't have one. No, yeah, they come into Walla Walla County. So you can... Sounds like another well, trip, Ken. It sounds like we need to tap Mike for that one. <laughs> so anytime in mid to late June and into July, um, they, they can appear. Okay. We've had them in our yard in Walla Walla. Wow. Yeah, I know they straggle yeah. around. But. Yeah. So they're, so they're annual. Yeah. Wow. Small and numbers, Anna, but Anna's they're are moving in too, aren't they? Yeah. Anna's now are here annually every winter. Hmm. And we believe they're breeding in Walla Walla they probably now. Are. I see reports all the time. They are yeah. everywhere else. Why wouldn't they be here? Yeah. So anyway, so I just wanted to share with your listeners uh, one more thing, and that is the arrival of species in my lifetime here mm -hmm. that were there were no records prior. Uh, one is the Buick's Wren. Uh, Jewett and Gabrielson never saw Buick's Wrens in the Blue Mountains, never. Hmm. And they arrived here in 1979, was the first one that we found in Fort Walla Walla Park in Walla Walla. And now they go all the way into Penticton, BC, all the way up into the Panhandle of Idaho. Wow. The other is the lesser goldfinch. Uh, lesser goldfinch and the population we have uh, have come out of uh, southeastern Oregon and western Idaho. And they have come out of the Great Basin and now they are an abundant breeding species in the lower Columbia Basin. And they're moving north and they now have reached Adams County, Grant County, and Yakima County. And they're moving north. Yeah. Wow. Used to, did you hear that? Yeah. Red Nape Sapsucker. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. yes. Got it. Just yeah. called. Cool. So uh, the lesser goldfinches now uh, used to only be found around Lyle in Clickitat exactly. County. And those were the population coming out of the eastern slope of the Cascades. Mm -hmm. Now this we... This is a different population. Different population coming, coming out of huh. southern Idaho and Utah. And they're here now. And so that's... We had tons of them last so winter. Two different populations in western and eastern. Right, right. Yeah, there he is. That's, yeah. He's probably in that dead tree right yeah, there. Yeah, probably is. Anyway, so that's been amazing to watch, uh, these two species. In a come, short period of time. Oh, Very 25 short. years. Yeah. They're here. And uh, now their population's expanded. clear Not into to mention Anna's hummingbird. Right, and Anna's hummingbird as well. Yeah. yeah. So the first Anna's was in uh, 2001, uh, arrived December of 2001 at the mayor of College Place's home. <laughs> and he called me, his name was Wilbur Holly. And Mr. Holly said, uh, hey, I've got a hummingbird in my yard, what's going on? And that next week it was there, it was a beautiful male. 
and it went down to 11 above, and he oh wrapped heat tape around a hummingbird <laughs> feeder, plugged it in, and that Hummer fed from before first light to almost dark. Right there. All day long. And I drained that feeder once a day. Oh my gosh. Oh, a couple. Yeah. <laughs> and Wilbur Hawley was so excited about having a hummingbird in December. The first hummer. And I have photographs of that male hummingbird sitting there with chunks of ice frozen into the oh. bush he's sitting on. <laughs> oh yeah. My God. yeah. Yeah. So well, pretty soon you'll have scrub jays, you know. Well, they're they're exactly 50 miles from us yeah. and we know they'll be here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as oh and uh, great-tailed grackles. We now have had records of them here, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're moving sure. north. They're moving north. Yeah. And the scrub jay, we expect, we expect both of them, because we had a wood houses appear at uh, Timothy Island, uh, out by Clarkston, mm. uh, in the okay. early 2000s, and then we have uh, California, California coming, coming from the west coming side. The other way. Yeah. So we could get end up so with which both. Which one are you going to get first? That's I don't know. It'll be the California. I suspect, yeah. yeah. But so we have all these birds moving north as our climate continues to alter and change. Yes. And here we call it climate shift because things are shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and by shift, I mean we have longer, drier, warmer falls that now stretch clear into early January. And we have longer, colder, wetter springs that start in mid-January and go clear into June. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So things are changing. That oh, is for it's sure. Oh, a major shift. They shifted it. Sure. Yeah. Well, Mike, so. I'm going to wrap this up. Yes. I, it has been so, <laughs> This is a first for me, uh, uh, watching a great gray owl while I record a podcast with a local pro. So well, that is cool. But anyway, Mike, are there any things you wanted to make sure you get into uh, causes to push or oh. uh, people to mention or how to get a hold of you or anything like that? Well, first of all, I would like to say if people have a chance to go birding, do it because it is a stress reliever. It is an opportunity to expand your horizons of your life. And it puts you into a world where conservation matters. And whether most people recognize it or not, conservation matters. But when you're out there in the natural world, you see where it really matters. And so uh, I would urge folks that are listening to get outside. And uh, even if they don't want to watch birds, uh, pick up something. Identify the native plants or go after uh, photograph butterflies. There's so much you can do. The other thing is, join a conservation organization. I can't stress that enough, because together we're much more uh, vocal and much mo- have much more sway than if you're a single person out there. So I would urge you, uh, look at the Washington Ornithological Society or your local Audubon Society. Uh, very important. Um, there's National, the American Birding Association, which is very important. So. Anyway, very cool. So let's just finish with about a minute of quiet. Uh, the birds are just very vocal. So Mike, tell us what we're hearing here. Oh, beautiful. Sparrow. I hear right over here. Hermit, hermit thrush. Hermit thrush singing like mad. <laughs> Fantastic sound. Yes. It's the sound of higher elevation. It is. Yeah, we had Viri 
and we had Swainson thrushes on lower today. Yep. Yeah. Three spot breasted thrushes yeah. this morning. Yeah. So what is it? A little after one? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. 12, uh, a little afternoon. 12 15. So usually by 12, most birds have quieted down and they will start singing and calling again by about 4 30, 5 right. o'clock. Right. So. I, th I thought, you know, let's take a listen here. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Mike. Ken, you bet. my sidekick here with me too. That's this extra special. And uh, thanks again. Take care now. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 63 with Mike Denny. I had a blast doing this episode. I hope that came through in the recording. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, that's one hour of the three days Ken and I spent in southeast Washington, uh, birding the Blue Mountains and the rest of Walla Walla County and surrounding areas. If you want to learn more about that trip, uh, I wrote a nice trip report uh, on the Bird Banner podcast uh, website, birdbanner.com. Check under the Ed's Field Notes area. I'll also leave a supporting blog post to talk about some of the things that Mike talked about during this episode. Uh, land trusts are super important. Great gray owls are really cool. I'll leave some photos there. Uh, Mike showed us around the rest of Walla Walla County for the whole day. Ken and I, we thought, oh, it's so nice of Mike to show us these owls. We thought, they'll pick us up, take us out, show us the owls. He'll be leaving by two or so in the afternoon. Not to be. When Mike takes us out for a day, he took us out for a day. Uh, we finished the day by watching the sunset over Rattlesnake Mountain about five minutes to nine. Uh, so we were birding a seriously long day and had so much fun. Besides the great gray owls that we talk about during this episode, we saw ferruginous hawks. There are not a lot of ferruginous hawks in Washington. I think there may be 40 or 50 birds altogether. We saw 11 of them on the one day we were out with Mike Denny in Walla Walla County. It is the high density area ferruginous hawks in Washington, way down in the southeast corner. And Mike knows that county like nobody else. We had a terrific time. I got some nice photos of those birds. You can find those photos on the blog uh, blog post that supports this episode, along with a, a trip report that I wrote on the same bird banner blog under Ed's Birding Notes section. You can check that out too for a lot more pictures of that. Ken and I had such a terrific weekend. We took off early and tried chasing the little turn, excuse me, the least turn uh, that was seen in King County uh, the day before, but we missed on that. So got to start about nine o'clock for Eastern Washington. Pretty much drove straight through uh, to Bateman Island in Benton County. Neither of us had birded Benton County much during the summer. I had been there last year for a little bit in the fall. We got quite a new few new county birds uh, and had a really good time there. Gray catbird, Bullock's Oriole, just some beautiful birds. Had a nice time there. Uh, from there we went on to Walla Walla County uh, where we went to the Millet Ponds and the Blood Ponds. Blood Ponds, what a horrible name for a place, but it's right beside a cattle yard. And I think that the Difficulty with packing plants may be playing a big issue in Washington, too. Usually when we go by the blood ponds to look at the wetlands area there and look for owls and bank swallows and that sort of thing, we see a fair number of adult cattle in the, in the cattle yards. But this time there were hundreds and hundreds of young cows in the, in the feed feed layered. Now, I don't think they usually put them there that time. I think they usually, you know, raise them in the fields and bring them in just to fatten them up before slaughter there. God, it just was really sad to me to see hundreds and hundreds of little cows there. It looked like they were just going to kill them young or something. I don't know what the whole story was, but it was not a pleasant sight. Anyway, we got 
uh, barn owls and bank swallows and a nice variety of birds there. Went out to the millet ponds. If you get a chance in Walla Walla County, be sure to check out the millet ponds. It is a terrific area. And while we were there, we saw American avocets and black stilts, sort of expected species. Got our first of the year, Eastern Phoebe. Uh, Eastern Phoebe. Blah. Eastern Kingbird. Eastern Phoebes have been seen in Spokane. We didn't go out there for that. Eastern Kingbirds. Uh, we also saw lots of black-crowned night herons, which are a tough bird to find a lot of places in Washington, and had a nice time walking around there and battle mosquitoes. Uh, from there, uh, we got our first hotel during the pandemic time. We stayed at a hotel in, in Walla Walla, and it worked out fine. It seemed quite safe. The good precautions, the room was clean, kind of had a, a no-touch check-in, and there was no meal in the morning or anything, and it seemed like no big deal to stay in a hotel. So that worked out nicely. We met Mike the next morning. He took us out birding for the whole day. We talked a, a little bit about that episode time while we were in the Blue Mountains uh, on the podcast. But after that, we got to see Greentail Towhee up Biscuit Ridge Road uh, and Calliope Hummingbirds, quite a few of those, just really fun birds for, tough birds to find in Washington unless you go to the right areas. Uh, so we got to see those and had a terrific day. I also put some pictures of the sunset. This is Mike at sea end of the day. It's like 8.30. We are just like pretty schnoggered. And Mike says, oh, it'll be worth waiting for the sunset. It's going to be spectacular. And he was right. It was worth waiting for the sunset. It was spectacular. So uh, we didn't head off for our destination till around 9 that night. So it was a really, really cool day. We just had so much fun. Uh, and uh, Mike, uh, one of the really funny parts of the day was uh, Mike is just an all-round naturalist. He seems to know everything about everything. He's a bi retired biologist. He knows the plants. He knows the animals. He knows the geology. He knows the uh, uh, butterflies. He was a big butterfly guy. Uh, and so we looked at all sorts of cool stuff for them the whole course of the day. Just had an absolute blast. Again, photos of a lot of this will be in the blog posts that I mentioned earlier. And uh, we had so much fun. Just a terrific day. And on the way home, Ken and I decided, rather than go back up uh, into southeast Washington, we would just work our way along the Columbia River. So we went uh, along the north shore of the Columbia River and stopped at... Uh, stopped at some places along there. Uh, we stopped at the Balch Cemetery uh, in the Balch Road area looking for acorn woodpeckers and uh, uh, white-breasted nuthatch and asteroid flycatcher. Asteroid flycatchers are not easy to find in Washington either, again, unless you go to the right places. Asteroid we got, we did not find an acorn woodpecker. There's a granary tree there we look for acorn woodpeckers at. It's really far away, looking far away in a scope, and there aren't a lot of birds around, so we had no luck at all with acorn woodpeckers or white-breasted nuthatch, but we had a terrific day. Another great day for butterflies. Good Lord, there were butterflies all over the place. I have got a bone up on my butterflies. It would add a lot to birding. Uh, but I'm, you know, un poco a poco, as my daughter Jean would say from Costa Rica. Un poco a poco, little by little, I'll learn things here and there. Uh, and uh, so after Stefan Schlick last week and Mike this week and being out with Ken, I have got to get into butterflies more. They're so beautiful and it'll be nice to know what I'm looking at. So I did get the new butterf the butterfly book, the pile butterfly book that Stefan talked about and I've got some learning to do. So butterflies, I've got to get over. So let's hope I can do that. 
Anyway, we had a great trip home, uh, stopped in, uh, in uh, Skamania County, a couple of places, just checked around, had a run-in, uh, run-in, run-in's not quite the right word, but uh, some uh, fellow on a pickup truck uh, 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 stopped us to let us know that our car was a little too far out in the road for him and that uh, he, uh, he wanted to know uh, what we were doing there. We told him we were bird-watching, he says, well, tell me what birds. I said, well, pretty much all kinds of birds. He says, well, tell me, how can I get rid of them? I want to kill them all. <laughs> he just was after trying to pick a fight. Uh, asked us, if, you guys queer? <laughs> anyway, yeah, he was having a rough day, I guess. I'm not sure what was going on. But we managed to avoid uh, 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 getting enough big fight. Uh, just a little argument, or mostly listen to his side of an argument while his bluster wore off. Anyway, had a, had a nice time there, <laughs> except for that little run-in, uh, and then uh, got home safely. So had a terrific, terrific three days in southeast Washington. Mike Denny rocks that Walla Walla County. We had so much fun, uh, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, good birding, good day.